0: So I'm going to read to us, um, John chapter 19, I'm going to read from verse 25 to 27. Verse 25, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. So as Jesus looks down from the cross, looks down to his mother, looks down to his closest disciple, John, he he gives them to one another. And it's a scene that has captured the hearts of many over the years, the imagination of artists and art historians. They've engaged with it, they've dealt with it. Let me just try and show you a couple. On the left... You've got Roger van der Weyden, there you go, you've got Jesus on the cross, and you've got Mary and John on the floor. You've got Michelangelo, Michelangelo Buonarroti as well on this side, and a couple more as well, just to give you a glimpse. Um, on the left again, uh, Jan van and on the right, Antonella de Messina. But, but more than that, of course, rather than just capturing the hearts and minds of people, where are we sat this morning? It's not a Grotti school gym, but what's the name of the school St. Mary's and St. John's. But what does it mean? Why has this scene captured the hearts and minds of many? Why have artists and art historians got so excited? Why have we named churches and schools after this little scene in John? Why does John bother to add it? What does it mean? Well, you remember, if you know anything about John... um, that he's written a selective book of signs for us. He's been deliberately selective, trying to show us, more than that, persuade us that Jesus is God's king and that through trusting him we have life. And so aside from a beautiful opportunity for artists, what does this little encounter show us? What does it add? Um, I think as I've wrestled with it these last couple of weeks, actually, it's been a real joy because it's a little bit I've never really got before just kind of a slightly quirky thing. Um, it looks fairly innocuous, but I think it's a bit like the TARDIS. And as you open the door, you see it's a lot bigger on the inside. There's a lot going on behind this little, little encounter. So um, a couple of broad ideas first, and then we'll zoom into two um, more specific ones particularly. The big picture thing is it's a beautiful, poignant eyewitness detail. Here is John at the cross telling us what he saw. This is John... In the midst of the brutality, showing us that we find kindness. In the midst of death, showing us life. In the midst of hatred, we find love. In the midst of taking away, we find giving. Because John's life was never the same again. He he gains a mother. Mary's life was never the same again. She gains a son. Can can you imagine them, just as he finishes off that verse 27, from this time on, the disciple This disciple took her into his house, looking back in in years ahead of this little moment at the cross, the beginning of their journey together, the beginning of this new family unit. Mary is seemingly a widow now. She can't provide for herself. I'm told it would have been common at the time for for people who were about to die, for mums about to die, to be entrusted to somebody else for care. It's unusual that it's not one of Jesus' earthly brothers. You get hints in John's Gospel, particularly around chapter 7, that maybe they're not believers yet. And so firstly, it is just a beautiful, poignant eyewitness detail of John telling us what he saw, and maybe of how his life was never the same again as he gains a new mum. But I think secondly as well, in the story of John, that the whole thing has come full circle. So do you remember back at the start of John's Gospel, the first of the signs is the wedding at Cana, the most famous wedding in all the world, referred every Saturday at the church wedding services. And there was the first of John's signs that reveals something of Jesus' identity and his glory. They, they run out of wine, do you remember? They ask Mary and she asks Jesus to help. And in the midst of the story, there's this confusion. Jesus saying his time has not yet come, but he still gives the wine. And so he provides what they need into the midst of a helpless situation Jesus can provide. In the midst of shame and embarrassment for the family who would be hosting the wedding, Jesus covers that. He shows them something of the abundance of the kingdom from this first sign. That was the start. And yet fast forward on to chapter 19 where we are today. It's a very different setting. We're not at a wedding anymore. We're at the cross. It's not a time of of joy and celebration. It's a time of sadness and darkness. We're not at the feast anymore. We're at the funeral. But actually... There are still similarities, I think. There's still the confusion that is there, and yet his time now has come. The language is the same as he says, woman, in chapter 19. It was the same word back in chapter 2 as well. And we think that sounds a bit kind of awkward and a bit unkind, but actually it didn't mean any disrespect at all. There's confusion, but once again, he is providing what is needed for Mary. Mary. Once again, he is dealing with with shame in her being a widow, but actually he is covering that by giving her a new son to provide for her. Once again, you'll see something of the abundance of the kingdom coming out as he pours himself out for them and for us. And so once again, you see his beauty and his glory in John's gospel just kind of trickling down and working its way through into everyday life. So those are two sort of big picture thoughts to kind of get to grips with something of what's going on in the light of John. But as I say, I think it is a TARDIS, so as we open the door, a little bit more of why we think it matters and why John records it for us. Um, So the first aspect we're going to zoom in on is this, and there are two aspects. And the first one is that he fulfills the law. So do you see, as he honours her, as he honours her as his mum, and as he honours her as a widow, he fulfills the law. And of course, honouring your parents is in um, Ten Commandments, both givings of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. The Fifth Commandment, honour your father and mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. And as he honours her, and he loves her, and he provides for her, so he perfectly keeps the law. And that matters. That matters because he came to keep God's good law perfectly, and to never sin, that he might complete and fulfil the law that he might be the perfect lamb of God, that he might be the true Passover sacrifice who did not deserve to die. And so as he dies for his people, so his obedience, his fulfilling the law is credited to people like us, people who are dirty and sinful and you get it wrong. And so God looks at us as perfectly righteous law keepers as we trust his son, we are united to him by faith. That is, God looks at me and he looks at you and he sees that it is done because Jesus has done it for you. He is pleased with us because of Christ. So he honours her as his mum, but as well as that, he honours her as a widow. And so he fulfils the law in that too. If you were here last week, you remember Andy was preaching and um, as Bex told the kids and as Charlie prayed in as well... um, I mean, you might have studied in home groups too, I guess, if you were around for that. We were the thief on the cross, and we saw with Andy that Luke cares for the outcasts, whether they be thieves on crosses, or shepherds in fields, or sinful woman anointing Jesus. In Luke, we saw God cares for the outcast. But you know, it's not, uh, not just a Luke thing. It's a drumbeat again and again and again of the scriptures. God cares for the outcast. And why is it there? Why is this care for the outcasts there? Is it God just making a point? No, it's because of who he is. It's because of what he's like. Let me just give you a few examples as you trace it through the Bible story and see how it works out. Um, So an example from Leviticus 23 and verse 22. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. And then you see that, of course, beautifully being worked out. Where? In Ruth. Thank you. Glorious Technicolor. Because of the law of God, so Ruth, a foreign woman, a widow, an outcast, is able to glean food for herself. She has no hope, no future on her own. But because of the law of the Lord, she can provide for herself and her family. God set up the law because of who he is for people like Ruth. And we can miss that, I think, in the West, can't we? That we have these massive blind spots and think, well, surely God is for people like me. But I want to say God is not a God of the rich and the powerful. Or another one, Deuteronomy 10, verse 18 to 19. Again, you see God's heart for the outcast and particularly relevant for our stuff in John this morning. He, Deuteronomy 10, verse 18, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. You see, this beautiful law of the Lord reflects what he is like. He is kind. People matter. All kinds of people matter, and especially the kind of people perhaps that we might not remember or care that much about. Or perhaps the people who won't be able to repay us for what we do for them. we'll get little in return and so Jesus gives John to his mum a widow and gives his mum to John why because he knows what his father in heaven is like and he cares for the outcast and as he does that he keeps the law perfectly and fulfills it and I guess as we chew those kinds of ideas over they should do a number of things, that they should stretch and challenge our comfortable understanding of God. Because he is the one who cares for those with little societal status. And yet our hearts can easily re- forget that, if you're anything like me. They can stretch our understanding of God, but they can challenge us in the day-to-day as well. Maybe the big picture stuff is you consider the plight of refugees around the world. Maybe as we consider the communities and needs within Oxford or our little bit of East Oxford and the marginalised that we see here. But maybe as well in the sort of little low-level day-to-day nitty-gritty stuff. So as you sort of mentally walk your way through the week and thinking of your diary or the kind of people you see, who might they be? Who are the outcasts in, in your week? Maybe the widow in your family. Maybe the neighbours on your street or people at your work or the individuals that you pass day by day or even people in church here. The kind of people who are overlooked and ignored. The kind of people who, who loving them might be costly and messy and complicated and will need us to get our hands quite dirty in a way that we might feel uncomfortable about. And yet you see we do that because that's what he is like. And that's what he's done for us. So the first thing he does is he fulfills the law. The second thing I think he does is he founds the church. You can ask my family afterwards. um, But one of my big failures and flaws in life, I think, is, is selfishness in suffering. That is... When life is hard, for whatever reason, I'm poorly, I'm grumpy, I'm stressed, I'm tired, whatever it might be, in the midst of those hardships, I easily, my knee-jerk reaction is to zoom in on me and myself. And even more than normal, it becomes all about me, and woe is me, and serve me, and boo-hoo-hoo. And yet I'm struck because Jesus looks down from the cross. He is literally dying. And he is very kind. Isn't that striking? Despite his pain and his suffering, despite the reality of his situation, he he cares for them. He is so kind, he is so good. This powerful king who rules from Golgotha, the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth had been given, here is one whose embrace is as wide as the world, and yet his embrace is personal for each of us. In our situations, in our contexts, in our lives, in our weeks. He knows us. He knows what we're going through. He knows the anxieties, the stresses, the strains, the fears. And he is kind. And he helps us. But I think it's more than just kindness. Because I think there's something bigger going on. Here we see in micro what he will do in macro. And that is... Because of the cross, a new family is formed. A a new family is created, it's founded, it's gathered together around the cross. What do I mean by that? Um, Flick over the page with me, or if it's in front of you in your church Bibles, just have a look in at um, John 20 and verse 17 to 18. And you see something this new family being worked out. So let me read from verse 17. This is the bottom of that first little column on page 1089. Jesus said to Mary, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. So after the resurrection, Mary Magdalene meets Jesus, unexpected. Um, and after the meeting, she, she runs to the disciples and tells them that she's met him. But, but what in verse 17 is really interesting is how does he describe them? He, he describes them, go on, it's not rhetorical, see if you're awake. How does he describe them as? Brothers. Thank you. And he says, I'm sending to my father and your father. This is the first time that John will call disciples brothers, as far as I can see in John's Gospel. Come and tell me afterwards if I'm wrong. But it's not the last time he does that at all. It's as if because of his death they now have the same father. They are now brothers. They are part of the same family now. And the John the Gospel writer, I take it becomes John the letter writer... And if you know one John at all, you know right through, 12 times in fact, that this brother, brother and sister word, Adelphoi, is used again and again and again, fellow believers. (coughs) Jesus' death creates a new family, creates the church. And I think that begins, explicitly at least, it begins here. And it becomes something of a theme for John as he continues his writing. So he will track this outworking of the idea that as brothers and sisters we're to care for each other, we're to love each other, we're to provide for each other. Indeed, as he gets to his first letter, John will say that it is a touchstone for authenticity. That is, it's very challenging if we don't love brothers and sisters in Christ. John seems to say it might actually bring into question whether we're actually a part of the family in the first place. But do you see the point? Other people are very often the means by which God works and provides. You've probably, um, you've probably heard this kind of parable um, before. Um, but a man was trapped in his house during a flood, and he began praying to God to rescue him. And he had this vision in his head of God's hand reaching down from heaven and lifting him to safety. And the water starts to rise in the house, and his, his neighbor shouts to him, come, come, quick, quick, quick. I'll give you a lift, and the man yelled back, it's all right, I'm waiting for God to save me, it's going to be okay. The neighbour drives away. The man continues to pray, he holds on to this vision, time goes by, water lifts, and a boat comes by. Things are getting bad, people heading for safe ground, and they yell to the man, grab on, come, come, come. He says, no, it's okay, I'm waiting for God to come and save me. They shake their heads, they speed away. The man continues to pray. The floodwaters continue to rise, and a helicopter flies by. A voice over the loudspeaker kind of lowers the ladder and says, come, come, come. It says, okay, I'm waiting for God to come and save me. And the helicopter leaves and the flooding water reaches the roof and the man is swept away. And it's a bit of a silly illustration, but it matters when we're the guy in the flood on the roof, waiting for God to answer our prayers about something, when he may already have provided what we need through friendships, through people he's put in our lives, through the church family, through this community. As John has given Mary to, uh, sorry, as Jesus has given John to Mary and Mary to John, so God's kindness is seen in giving us other people. Other people are the means by which God very often works and provides, and yet we can be too proud to think we don't need them, and we're there waiting, it's all right, God's going to come and sort it out, but maybe that person might be whom God has sent And yet we live semi-detached lives and we're so self-sufficient. We can miss that. We can miss the gifts of others. So it matters when we're the guy sat on the roof. But it matters as well when we're the guy in the lifeboat or in the car or the helicopter. Because maybe God has given you grace, resources, gifts, time, energy, money, abilities. That you might care for others. And as you do that, so you serve Him. You see where I'm going with? We, we might be the answer to the problems of others. We might be the ones whom the Lord is deploying into the lives of others to give them provision, protection, friendship, security, help. It's how church works. My problem is, I so easily end up just being a dam, whereby I collect up and I save and I kind of squirrel away all this grace I've been given, and it doesn't end up flowing downstream to people who need it. I don't know, he gives us the gift of singing. It's not me. He gives us the gift of singing. But we just kind of sing in the shower to shampoo and sponges and rubber ducks or he gives us the gift of cooking and we just kind of cook for ourselves or he gives us money and we sort of squirrel it away or we, we spend it on us but don't actually use it for the things that he's given us for. It's a bit of a scratch record but we often talk at Morden Road about being a um, church being a, not a restaurant but a family meal. Some of you can kind of switch off for the next 30 seconds. But we don't simply come to church to sit and to consume and to receive and leave grumpy if our itches weren't quite scratched or it wasn't quite as if we would like. We're a part of a family meal. We do it together. We've got brothers and sisters getting stuck in and sorting out chairs and glasses and someone's doing puds and someone's doing main courses and someone's doing starters and there's a whole team washing up and everyone getting in as a family together with each other. That's church. That's something I think of what John Hints at here as he forms his new family unit off the back of the cross. And see, Jesus is so kind. This is his very lowest point. This is the worst point in all of history. This is the depths. And yet here he is, fulfilling the law perfectly. Here is our king providing for his mum and his friends. And here he is founding the church, making this new family centered around the cross, which, which I think means as we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper in a moment, do you know, it's an extraordinary, appropriate thing for us to do. We celebrate the death of our King, the pure and perfect, law-keeping, sacrificial Lamb. His body broken for us, his blood poured out for us. We remember his kindness, his provision. We remember his humbling love he deals with our sin and our shame and and gives us just what we need but then we do it as community because he founds the church together as a family a people united by the cross gathered around the cross whom the lord gives to one another and so i want to say as we pass bread along And as we pass around the wine, as you sort of pass it on to the person next to you, don't see that this morning, or don't ever see it, but particularly this morning, don't see it as a purely sort of practical thing. We're just sort of distributing the elements or distributing bread and wine. But look at them and think, this is someone whom the Lord has given to me. This is a brother or sister in Christ. And I am given to them as family. Because that's what church is. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are astonished by your extraordinary kindness for us. We thank you that as you die there in our place, on the cross, we see your amazing love. Thank you that you were the one who came and perfectly fulfilled the law. Thank you that you were the one who came to found the church, this new community gathered around the cross. We thank you for your love.